Acts 28, beginning in verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteo... Put, I, I practiced this, sorry about that. Um, put, uh, Puteoli, Puteoli, thank you. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled and appealed to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him to come, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull. And with their eyes they can barely with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. You know, February 8th, 1983. February 8th, 1983. Do you know where you were? It's a banner day. It actually is the day that New York City notes from its public works the highest water usage at one given time in the city's history. 
11.03 p.m., February 8th, 1983. Does anybody know why? It was not the Super Bowl. It was just after the season finale of the show MASH. It was the highest rated season finale in the history of television. It's actually to this day still the most watched television event in the history of media. And the city of New York noted that about 70% of the city's toilets flushed at 11.03 p.m. that evening. Yeah, that, that's exactly, and, and our plumbers are very excited about that. Rather than, we are, rather than talking about toilets or water usage, what I, what I want to note is that um, if you've been watching any television or you've been doing any binging on Netflix or you've been following us along with the book of Acts, um, there are, there's, a, there's this phenomena in, in the television world, and that is the season finale. Does anybody have experience with season finale? Maybe you watch the MASH season finale. Okay? But there's always these notable season finales. The second most watched season finale is the last episode of Cheers. Okay? After that, it's the final episode of Seinfeld. That's right. Good. This is, see, this is participatory. After that, it was the last episode of Friends, the, book, the, the show Friends. And then I had to include this one because it's the fifth most watched season finale of all time, and that is the final episode of Magnum P.I. Who doesn't like Magnum? I mean, Rick, T.C., right? Magnum, you've got Higgins, you've got Zeus and Apollo, the Doberman Pinchers. Come on, everybody. One of my favorite shows of all time. Now, among the most critically acclaimed season finales, and both of these predate my television watching, okay? Probably the most critically acclaimed season finale was 1967, the last episode of The Fugitive. Is anybody out there? Where Richard Kimball finds a one-armed man and they have a fight and they get a... There's, okay, you get the idea. It was one of the most... It was the first... Tele, it was the first of the genre, the season finale. It was the very first... Also very high on the critically acclaimed list is the season or the um, the final finale, the the, uh, the the show finale for the Mary Tyler Moore show. That was a very highly rated one. Now many season finales did not end without some controversy or some critics that didn't exactly like the way it ended. I am still trying to figure out what the heck happened with the show Lost. Anybody? Anybody with me? What in the world? Okay, I don't know. Seinfeld had its detractors at the end of that show. Though I've not watched any of these series, they were all received with great disappointment. The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, Dexter, Roseanne, and How I Met Your Mother. I don't know if you've watched any of those, but all of them, if you look up season finales, they're all low on the season finale list. Now today, we come to the season finale of the book of Acts. This is how Luke ends it. Luke ends it here. And while it offers a conclusion, a season, a series finale, 
And it has its own excellence about it. It does not come with a bit of controversy and some loose ends that I think maybe all of us who have been following along in the book of Acts might have some questions as this season ends, as this series ends. I guess it's just showing like how I look at, you know, these books of the New Testament that you look at as TV shows, right? That we've been binge watching the book of Acts over this last year, and we've learned a lot. And so this will be the last one we have from here. In the next couple weeks, I want to do um, maybe some lessons learned from the book of Acts, but this will be our last one in the narrative. And to ask some questions, what does, what is Luke trying to do but also to answer, try to answer some questions that simply remain unanswered at the end of this book. Are you guys with me? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm excited that you all know that I love Magnum P.I. Um, it was one of my formative things that I watched growing up. Appreciate it. Red Ferraris, come on. All right, those of you out there. All right, so let's look at the passage, and let's kind of, let's take a look at that. And the end, the season finale would not be complete without what? A map. <laughs> a map. All right, let's show the map. Let's show the map. So let's, re- let, let's read in 2811, and we'll, we'll follow along on the map here. 2811 begins, it's a travel log here. After three months, we set sail on a ship that wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting out to Syracuse, we tra- stayed for three days. Let's see if we can show this. We can do this. There we go. Go down. What I'd like to, if I hold it right side up, that might help. Okay, so down here is our island of Malta, same size as uh, Catalina, right? That's where they shipwrecked. They go up to Syracuse and then to Regium. And then um, as this works, um, Regium here on the, the boot of Italy is known for this little harbor up here that a lot of ships would simply stay for a number of days until a favorable wind would take them. And what we find is that a favorable wind does show up and it takes this boat, if we can do this, it takes this boat in one day, 170 miles, up to the, the city I can't pronounce, um, Puteoli, Puteoli, thank you. Um, if you've been there, it's, it's Puzioli these days, but um, this, is, uh, this takes us there. And then that's where they offload, and we're going to see that they travel on foot, and we'll talk a little bit about this, about the, the, what lays before them. Um, But let me just say something about their sea travel and a little bit about what what Luke does and why Luke mentions these particular um, details in his travelogue here. And the first thing that maybe you just, you read over, but you didn't, might not have stopped at, is in verse 11, after three months, we set sail on a ship that wintered on the island of Malta, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Now, the twin gods, why does Luke include what's on the front of the boat? The masthead of the boat. Why does it include? And it, it, the twin gods are these twin sons of Zeus. Um, it's also what's known as Gemini, the constellation of Gemini. These twins, and the, the twins are Castor and Pollux, the two sons of Zeus. And why is this important? Okay, there's a couple of reasons why Luke probably includes this. Um, for one, Castor and Pollux are known as kind of the guardians, the patron gods of seafarers and the innocent, (laughs) okay, which that's a good boat to get on if you're on your way to a trial, okay, that's a good sign. It's also a sign, um, Euripides in the ancient world regards these twins as the guardians of truth and the punishers of perjurers. 
And again, if you are the Apostle Paul and you're on your way to Rome for a trial, and here's the boat that you book passage on, it's kind of this sign, especially, and probably the reason why Luke does this, is if you're reading, if you're a reader of the book of Acts, and you're still a little skeptical, like you're a pagan, like this might not make a big, like you're like, I don't care if Gemini, the sign of Gemini, is on the boat. You're like, because I don't believe in astrology, right? But if you're a reader of the book and you're a pagan in the ancient world, you would note this as a sign that of the truthfulness of Paul's testimony. We might not, we might not because we don't believe in astrology necessarily, um, but you're like, we'll talk later, um, but if you are a reader of this and you're a skeptic in the ancient world, you're a pagan, Luke includes this as, this is a sign from the heavens of the veracity of Paul's testimony. So they travel on this boat, and they, di- they get off the boat at Puteoloi. Put- oh, man. All right, thank you. We're just going to, this place right here, okay? Now, from there, this is the main, this is the main port, if you are coming in from the east, okay, if you're coming in from the eastern empire, that's your port, that's where you offload. You are still about 130 miles away from Rome, and it's still a five-day, very rigorous walk, and that's what they are looking at. And so what they see in verse 14, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. So they get off the boat, Paul, Luke is probably with them. It's a we passage. He's talking about we got off the boat. Whoever else is in Paul's entourage, Paul is a prisoner and he's being guarded by a centurion as well as the soldiers. And they get to this port town, this very busy port town, and they offload, they find some believers, brothers and sisters that are there. And for seven days, they're allowed to stay with these brothers and sisters. And it would make some sense. They had just been on a very difficult sea voyage that had its ups and downs, literally. They shipwrecked on an island. They only came, they've only gotten on the next boat based on the, the kindness of the Maltese that had outfitted them for this journey. Now they come to brothers and sisters in this port town, getting ready for a very rigorous five-day on-foot journey, and they're going to rest for seven days. And also what we're going to find out is that in that seven days, it provides time for the news that Paul is now on his way to Rome to make it to Rome, because what we're going to find out is that those in Rome, the believers in Rome who know about Paul, they're now going to come out to meet him a day or two journey out to meet him before he gets to Rome. Look at the next verses. In verse 15, and the brothers there in Rome when they heard about us, they came as far as the form of Apius and three taverns. So Apius, the form of Apius is about 43 miles away from Rome on this map. So just south of Rome. And then the, uh, the three taverns is only about 30 miles away. And that's the, that's the last stop before you walk all the way into Rome. So the next time you walk 30 miles in a day, that's the last leg of the journey. All right. You guys with me? All right. That's our map. Take a good look. Love it ingest it, feel it, because it's going away, and it's our last map of the book. I know, it's our last one. It's, you know, it's the, it's the sort of sentiment you get in a season finale, right? Okay, all right. We say goodbye to our favorite character in the book, the map. Okay, all right, the map. It, that sounds like Dora the Explorer, right? You guys watch that show? 
the map. Okay, all right. Thank you, everybody. It's just stream of consciousness up here. That's the way it works. All right, so what is interesting in verse 15, look at verse 15. In verse 15, it says, the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came out as far as Apius and three taverns to meet us. Now, don't, don't fly over this. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Okay, Paul thanked God and took courage. We can take the, the, the text down and put up our Acts logo. Um, but what we find here is that Paul, you could imagine, he's on this journey, and we oftentimes think of Paul as this kind of semi-divine character, right? That he, he has no emotions, he's always in charge. That's not the case. I mean, Paul is very human. And as he's approaching Rome, you can imagine, like, there's a number of things that he's wondering about. Like, Paul has written, by the way, he wrote the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, about two years earlier. So he's written this book, having never been to the city of Rome, he writes to these believers there. Aquila and Priscilla that he met in Corinth, they were from Rome. And he, so he writes this letter to the Romans, and he doesn't know how it's going to be received. So not only does he not know how the believers in Rome are going to respond to him, he also doesn't know how the Jewish leaders of the city of Rome are going to respond to him. And oh, by the way, he's going on trial in front of the emperor and could be beheaded for this. So Paul is getting to this spot after a pretty rigorous journey and asking some really significant questions. And we actually hear him, we kind of hear him in the book of Philippians think out loud about this idea, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Like, that's the sort of thoughts that's going on in his head. Like, am I going to go on living or am I going to give my life for the sake of the gospel? Like, that's what's going on. But as these believers come to him a day or two out in his journey in, it says that he takes courage. It's not just that he's encouraged. It says that he actually receives, he thanks God. And he receives courage, boldness. And so this is a pretty significant point as he lands and as, he, as he's on his way and he meets these believers, he sees this as a sign that God is continuing to protect him. After this long and difficult journey, there's a genuine sense of relief and also recharge for the ministry that lay ahead. All right? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Um, what is it like for Paul in Rome? Because it'll be in Rome that he is, we'll, we'll see later that the, the so-called prison epistles come out of Paul's stay in Rome most likely. What is his imprisonment like? Look in verse 16. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a second, but this is, this is a fairly, like, if Paul, there's a lot of ways you could imprison someone in the ancient world. You could put them in a jail cell. You could imprison them in a compound, probably like what was, it was like in Caesarea down in, in Israel. Or you could allow them to rent their own house and just have a Roman soldier sit with them while they're in a rented house. Now, that doesn't exactly sound like your serial killer that you're trying to keep off the streets, right? So there is, there is this sense that Paul is going to experience some degree of freedom. As a matter of fact, as he is in Rome, what's the first thing he does? He calls to have visitors. 
I just arrived in Rome. I'm under house arrest. So why don't we have some people come and visit? Like that doesn't sound like a prison, so to speak. And so this is probably the sort of setting that we would imagine that Paul's prison letters are written out of. Far from kind of the shaft of light coming in to the dungeon, you know, and he's right. This is, he would be able to spread out, get his notes out there. He, but at the same time, he probably has a Roman soldier that's attached to him, whether that person is chained to him or not. Um, the Josephus records that Roman soldiers who guard prisoners are oftentimes changed out every four hours. So when Paul says in the book of Philippians that it's become clear throughout the whole Praetorian guard why I'm in chains, I mean, you can imagine it's like every four hours you got a fresh set of ears. And for the apostle Paul, he's like, hey, I'm so glad you made it, right? I'm so glad you could be here. Let me tell you a little bit about why I'm here. Have you ever heard of Jesus? And so every Roman praetor who's coming through every four hours, it's a fresh set of ears. And Paul makes that case in the book of Philippians that it's become clear to the whole palace guard why I am in chains. So we have that sort of freedom that's going on. But the first thing that he does is he, he sends out a request because he knows how the believers are, re, are going to meet him. We've already seen they've come out a day or two to greet him. They're excited. He's encouraged. But what about the Jewish leaders? who might not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or maybe even have never heard that Jesus is the Messiah. What about them? And we see that in verse 17. And this is what he says. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews in Rome. When they had gathered, he said to them, and he goes on to basically say, I've done, I did nothing wrong. I'm, uh, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. They examined me. They, went, they wanted to set me free. There was no death penalty on my case, but the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem objected. I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, and here I am, and I've asked to speak with you since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. And this is where Paul is probably like, okay, look, every other synagogue that I've been in, it hasn't ended well. And when I went to Jerusalem, there was a big riot, and there are people who don't like what I'm doing. Like, has word gotten this far, and what do these people think about me? And this is what they say in verse 21. They say, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So Paul, like, we haven't gotten any word of you, but we do know about this sect of Jesus followers, of Nazarenes, or this, this movement called the Way. And they say, we do desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it has been spoken against. And so Paul gets a sense, okay, they're on board. I'm a, a Jerusalem-trained rabbi. And they, they, under, they, know, they don't have anything against me, but they, do, they have heard about the Jesus movement. And they're, they're a little bit sketchy on it. They actually called it, they call it a heresy, a sect. And we want to know what your position is on this. And so what Paul does and what they do is they say, well, let's set up a time where we can come back with more people and we can have an extended 
you can give us an extended teaching on this. And Paul's like, last time I had an extended teaching, I had a guy fall out a window dead. So I am ready. I know how to go long, right? So Paul, in verse 23, when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And then from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So they set up a day to bring more people to hear a comprehensive explanation of what Paul has to say. What does he say? He starts in the law of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he talks about probably the messianic expectation. He gets to the prophets and he talks about the messianic expectation. No doubt he goes to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, 53, who talks about this Messiah is also going to suffer. He's a suffering servant. He's not a triumphant Messiah. He's a suffering Messiah. And in 28, 24, this was the response. Some were convinced. Some were convinced. Some were convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the King. Jesus is Lord. But others disbelieved. So you can imagine you have all this Jewish leadership and these, these Jewish representatives from all the synagogues in Rome, in the city of Rome, this vast, sprawling city of Rome. All these synagogue leaders come to this house, and Paul is, is, is really presenting, giving a day-long presentation about the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, and this is the way. Some of them are convinced, and some are not. Now, what else might he have said? We, we don't know what else he said, but up to this point, let's just put this in context. Paul, in the book of Acts and along the way, has already written the book of Galatians, the book of 1 Thessalonians, the book of 2 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians. He's already written these books. So whatever he's telling them, look, you read those books, you're probably going to get a sense of what Paul was saying. He's already written the book of Romans. Some of them might have been aware of that. So this day-long, think about a day-long journey through the law and the prophets and through part of the New Testament, the letters of Paul, that's probably what Paul had said or was saying there. The last word, the last word before the split verdict among the Jewish leaders, what the, the last thing he said before they took off some convinced, some not convinced, was his quotation and interpretation of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, this is what it says, look at 28, 26. Paul says, well, Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, quote, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their eyes they can, with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God 
has been sent, and you could add here, has been sent also to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So you have this house full of people. Half of them have been convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. The other half, not convinced. But really, the, the nail in the coffin is this. This salvation, this idea that Jesus saves, it's not just going to go to you folks. We've got to get this message out to the Gentiles. And that's when the half that don't believe are up and out of there to the Gentiles because your hearts have become dull. And we need to get this message to sharp hearts, to hearts that are ready to receive, to ears that are ready to hear, to eyes that are ready to see. And this is not, I think in some ways, what we have to understand is that this is not a ultimate judgment on the nation of Israel, okay? I want us to understand this. That this is not like if the book is closed on people who are Jewish. That's not what Luke is trying to do here. Luke is repeating a theme that comes up in the nation, in the history of Israel over and over and over again. That they go through a season of where they follow God's plan and God's law, God blesses them. But, they're, but then they run into a season where their, their hearts become dull to the things of God, and God sends a prophet, and God redeems them out, and then they go through another season where they repent, and they go back, and they obey the things of God, the laws of God, but their ears become dull, and they do not hear. And it's a theme that repeats over and over and over again, and I think what Luke is doing here is that what's happening is that this generation is filling into that pattern. Some people are believing, but some people are being dulled to the work of God. And I want to make this clear. This is not, again, this is, I, I think it's important for us to understand that this is not, we're not being anti-Semitic. We're not being, um, we're not saying that the nation of Israel is done. We're not saying that Jewish people are, are perpetually dull to the gospel. What we're saying is that this is a theme that shows up in Scripture, and that Paul, as a Jew, as a Jewish prophet, is saying, this is happening right now. You are being dulled. And it just so happens that God is going to open doors to the nations, to the Gentiles. And we're going to give this message to them because God wants to reach them. And your response to the idea that God wants to reach all people, because look at what happens at the end. What, what, what happens after this in verse 30, 28, 30? It says, Paul lives there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all the Jews who came to him? No, everyone who came to him, all-inclusive. Anybody who wanted to hear could come. And so this idea that this is going to be a time of salvation, of Rome, not synagogue, but everyone, everywhere, Anyone who could hear the gospel that God would quicken their ears, would quicken their eyes, would quicken their heart to hear the gospel. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And that also doesn't mean that every Gentile is, is, you know, like in our experience, like not every Gentile is ready to hear the gospel either. Like hearts are dull and hearts are receptive. And that cuts across every ethnic line that we might find in our world. Every socioeconomic level, hearts are dull and hearts are ready to hear. And that is the situation that Paul finds himself in at the end of this book. Look at verse 31. Well, it says he welcomed all who came to him. 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He welcomes all Jews and Gentiles. He proclaims the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus does. Jesus shows up and says the kingdom of God is at hand. And I think Luke is showing that Paul is in continuity with that. It's not like Paul reinvents Christianity. It's not like Paul is the second founder of Christianity. Paul is, a, is carrying on the teaching of Jesus. The kingdom of God is being presented. And it says he's doing it boldly and without hindrance. And that is where Luke ends it. That's the ending. That's the series finale. That's the season. That's the end of the book. And for some, we're like, that is an awesome ending. Is it an awesome ending? I mean, yeah, it sounds like an awesome ending, but at the same time, for others, look, I got questions. Are you out there and you're like, I got some questions? Maybe you do. Maybe you're like, well, what happens to Paul? Does he make it? Like, what, what happens to Luke? Does he make it? What, do we, what is going on? And, and for Luke, I think we have to understand that for Luke, the story is not about Paul. Is it? Think about Acts 1.8. If you think about Acts 1.8 as the main character where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The main character, some people argue that the main character in this book is the Holy Spirit, but probably the main character, if there is a main character, it's the gospel. It's the message. You will testify. You'll do it in Jerusalem, and Peter does that in Jerusalem. You'll do it in Judea, Samaria. Philip does it in Judea, Samaria, right? Peter does it in Judea, Samaria, and you'll do it to the ends of the earth. Paul just happens to be one of the people who's going to the ends of the earth, and we're tracking him, but more importantly, what Luke wants to do is track that the good news that Jesus is king is going to make it from Jerusalem to Rome. And once that message makes it to Rome, Luke's like, all right, season's over. We're done. Because we've arrived. The ends of the earth, the gospel, if you've made it to Rome, you may as well have made it everywhere. It's the hub of Western civilization of the day. Everywhere in the world goes to Rome and sends its people out to everywhere in the world. If you've made it to Rome, Kind of like New York, New York, if you've made it there, you can make it anywhere, right? Okay, sorry, I'm, you know, but that's the idea. If you can make it to that place, you may as well have made it everywhere. And so Luke's ending might satisfy some of us, right? But it also might leave some questions. Does anybody have any questions? It's okay if you do. I mean, raise your hands, come on. You gotta, no one has any questions. Rick, you got some questions? That's good. We can talk. No, uh, let's talk about some of these questions. Can I anticipate some of your questions? So here's my question. What the heck happens to Paul? We regard, whether the gospel is the main character, I feel a little invested. I feel a little invested in the Apostle Paul, right? As a pro, especially as a Protestant, come on, like, you know, like the, the, that so much about Paul has been wrapped up, and maybe that's part of why we feel so invested in Paul, and maybe why we have misgivings about a little critical 
uh, like, hey, Luke, how about a little bit, you know, throw us a little bone here at the end of the book, okay? And so this is what we find out. Here's a few clues about what happens to the Apostle Paul, okay? Um, one, we find out that when he gets to Rome in verse, 20, in verse 16, 28, 16, he was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Then in 28:30 it says, he lived there two whole years, so that would be between AD uh, 61 and 63 AD. The book of Acts really gives us information up until about 62 or 63 AD. That's it. Now, so we've got, um, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. It's, it's a lenient means of imprisoning. He's guarded this is also interesting. It doesn't say that he's guarded anymore by a centurion. It just says that he's guarded by a soldier. And usually the more important, the more um, deadly prisoners were guarded by a higher rank. And so Paul just gets a run-of-the-mill praetorium. Okay? Now, he gets, like we said, every four hours, it implies that Paul was not thought to be a serious threat to Rome or a committer of a heinous crime punishable by death. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Philippians about this time. Philippians 1.12, don't turn there, just listen. I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Philippi, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul probably writes Philippians from Rome, and he says, look, what this has done, my detainment, my chains, have emboldened the message and those who preach the gospel, including me. Like, I've been giving, I'm being given opportunities I never would have had if I was a free man traveling around. He also says this, that though, there, though he, he does seem confident that he's going to be released, there's a real danger. He goes on in 119 in Philippians. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body by life or by death. So Paul is really in a situation where he could live or he could die, and he goes on to say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And then this is probably the final word of this two-year imprisonment in Rome. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what happens to Paul at the end of this? Luke does not tell us. We can look at one of Paul's letters that he, he most likely writes while he's in that situation, that Paul has an expectation that he is, though there's real danger, but that he is going to be released. There are church traditions, extra-biblical traditions, that Paul, um, the, um, Clement, who actually writes about, about 100 AD, only about a, really, he's probably a young boy. The, Clement has an, an example where he 
learns at the feet of an elderly um, uh, apostle John. So he's like a generation behind. And Clement records that Paul goes to the limits of the West, which many scholars believe that Paul makes it all the way to Spain. My son walked on um, the, uh, um, the Camino Santiago, which cuts from um, across the, the northern part of Spain, and it ends at the traditional burial site of James the Apostle. But if you go a, day, a day's journey, you go to this place that's called the end of the earth. And this traditional site where you look out over the, over the Atlantic Ocean and that would have been known in the day as the end of the earth. And so some would argue that, that Paul makes it all the way out to Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, and he gives the gospel. We don't have any record of that except for this one place where Clement gives that. In church histories, Eusebius records that Paul became, after his imprisonment in Rome, became free to travel. And now we have other letters that bear his name, like 1 Timothy Titus and 2 Timothy, which we call the pastoral letters because he's training young pastors in those letters. But in that, it implies that Paul makes it to Crete, where he drops Titus off to be a pastor of that island, and then he makes it up to Ephesus, where he drops off Timothy to be the pastor of that area, and then he himself goes up to Macedonia, probably Philippi where it's there that he is probably eventually arrested, and then in 2 Timothy, he writes from his last imprisonment in Rome, where he's writing to Timothy that this is the end. Bring the cloaks and the parchments, and I just want some people around me because this is going to be the end. And, and historically, it's after Nero makes his bad turn. Nero has three and a half good years um, in, as the Caesar, where he's really benevolent, and then he's got three years where he's off his meds, and um, I mean, literally, he's nuts. He's crazy, and he's doing nasty, nasty things. And Paul, during those, during the Neronian persecutions, the tradition has it that not only Paul lo- dies, he's beheaded in that, but that the apostle Peter is um, is crucified during that time under Nero, and it's not good. And so these and these times are the most trying times for the early church. But again, these are all extra biblical traditions that we don't actually have in our Bibles, but we piece these things together along the way. So, it is a little speculative. Look, we have the series finale, right? We have the series finale, and we can trust that, but we speculate as we move forward that the Apostle Paul goes on in fruitful ministry, and then he eventually loses his life for the sake of the gospel. All right, how are we doing? You guys with me? Okay, look, if you weren't satisfied, now maybe you'll be satisfied. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this as we kind of, we finish the book of Acts? And we're going to, like I said, we're going to have a couple weeks where I just want to do a little bit of like lessons learned from the book of Acts. Like, let's bring it all together and look at some themes in the book of Acts, especially as we here at Taft Avenue Community Church, that we are essentially, we're Acts 29. I know there was a, there was a Sunday school group here, right, that called themselves Acts 29 because the book of Acts keeps going. The gospel keeps going out. And so as we think about, as we continue to be the people who testify about Jesus, what might that look like? And so we'll have a couple weeks where we can talk a little bit about what does it look like being the church as we extend the book of Acts. But for today, I want to end on this note. I want to end with Paul and just a little bit of self-reflection on our part. When Paul says to the Jewish leaders that are with him, he says, 
For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes, they can barely hear, or sorry, with, I, I'm saying this every time. I'm starting with eyes. With their ears, they can barely hear, and with their eyes, and their eyes they have closed. But he says, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. I just want us to think for a second. I want us to think about eyes, ears, and heart. And I want us to, first of all, just think about ourselves for a second. How, how are you doing with hearing the things from God's Word? And I don't just mean the things that encourage you. I'm, I'm saying the things that challenge you. Things that talk about your treasure here on earth, that talk about your allegiances here on earth. How are you doing in hearing that? Because sometimes for me, I can just say this, that I'll fly over passages that talk about money because, look, I don't want to talk about money. Or I'll fly over passages that talk about, you know, how am I doing in loving my enemies? Because I don't, look, I don't really want to deal with that right now. And what that is, that's, that's dulling. That's a dulling of our senses when it comes to God's movement and guidance in our hearts. Our eyes, our ears, our hearts. And I just... At the end of the book of Acts, just to ask, just to take a little stock. And I'm not saying like, it's not like I'm, I, this is a tune-up, everybody. This is a tweak. This is just a sense to say, how are you doing? Is there an area in your life where maybe you might have felt like you've been dulled over time? You know, we're talking about vaccines, right? We're talking about vaccines a lot these days. And the way a vaccine works, you get inoculated. You get, you get something that is kind of like the virus to, to allow you to protect yourself from actually dealing with the virus. We can be vaccinated against God's word at times. We've heard it either so many times or we've heard certain portions of it that we've just flown over other things, but we haven't really gotten really, I mean, this is a horrible thing, but has God's word gotten in and really gotten under your skin? Because that's the way God will work at times to move us out of our dullness. That's the first thing. I just, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to end on that, but I do want us, it's caught, we, I think for me as a believer, there are definitely times where I'm like, it's just time, it's time to take stock. It's just time to do a diagnostic and just ask the question, am I sharp or am I dull? Am I ready to hear the Spirit or are there areas in my life where I've kind of turned the volume down? And we don't want to be, we don't want to be in that spot. What we want to be, we want to say they would, that we would see with our eyes, that we would hear with our ears, that we would understand with our heart and we would turn and God will heal any dullness. And I also want to say this, as we're wrapping this up, not, not, don't look at you. I want us to think about this idea that when God talks to the, the prophet Isaiah and when he talks to the apostle Paul, he says, hey, when you preach, you preach to ears, you preach to eyes, you preach to hearts. You say, you say something to them. In this case, Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. You say something to their ears, but you also preach to their eyes. You do something that Jesus would do. You show the compassion and love of Jesus. 
You show the self-emptying love of Jesus in your own life. This is one thing about the Apostle Paul. It is a constantly, he embodies the idea of self-emptying love. Jesus, who in the very nature of being God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. He takes the form of a human. He takes the form of a slave. He suffers the death, on a, not just death, death on a cross. He self-empties. Show them that. Preach to eyes. Don't just preach to ears, preach to eyes. But don't just preach to ears and eyes. Preach to hearts. You tell people there's peace. You tell people who are in chaos that there is peace. You tell people who are in guilt that there is forgiveness. You preach to people who are enslaved that there is freedom. You preach to hearts. You give it to them, but don't give it to them dryly. Give it to them in the depths of your soul. Feel it deeply. Give it deeply. Last night we started watching um, The Chosen. I don't know if any of you guys have watched this thing. You can download the app. You can watch it. It's like, look, waterworks. If you want the waterworks, it's, it's all about Jesus and his ministry. It builds. It's kind of built a little slowly at the beginning, but as it gets going, when lives are changed preach to hearts. What does it say? When they hear, when they see, when, they, when their heart hears it, when they understand, God says, when they turn, I will heal them. God can heal any dullness, any dullness. God can take his message anywhere to any person. We're just talking about the, we started, we're interested in the Apostle Paul. That guy was a murderer and wanted to destroy Christianity. And we're like, oh, what happens to Paul at the end? Like, we're so in it because his transformed life, the, a walking example that God can reach any heart. And we need to know that. Because we are smack dab in the middle of a community of people who have eyes, ears, and hearts. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will testify to the eyes, ears, and hearts of the people in your neighborhood and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come today and we're grateful, we're grateful for this book of Acts and this season finale of the, uh, the book of Acts, the series finale of the book of Acts. We're thankful that Luke would pen this, that he wrote this 2,000 years ago, and it still is as poignant today as it was 2,000 years ago. We thank you, Father, that we're here because you've reached into our hearts, into our ears, into our eyes, and you've shown us the truth. And we've responded in faith, but we also know that that's no guarantee that there might not come days and weeks or months of dullness. And we ask, Father, that you would heal us of our dullness. We also pray, Father, maybe somebody came to mind in our community, their eyes, their ears, their hearts. And if somebody did come to mind for you, just take a second to pray for them. Pray for their eyes. Pray for their ears. Pray for their hearts. Pray that you would be given an opportunity to testify. To say Jesus is Lord. To Jesus is King. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would 
give us opportunity, but also give us the empowerment to testify. We thank you for this opportunity today. We thank you that you are our God, that you love us, that you would send messengers, that you would give us your word, that you would send your Holy Spirit. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.